0: So step seven in the, the 12 steps says, um, it refers to God as he, so it says, humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. And it's kind of tied with step six, which says we were entirely ready to have God remove his defective character, and then the, our defective character becomes shortcomings in step seven, these different terms for it. Uh, humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. I actually read... Bill Wilson's uh, twelve and twelve on step seven today, which I've read many times before, and found myself as frustrated as usual with his <laughs> interpretation of the step because I always wanted him to say something about like how does this work. So that's that's the that's kind of the question that I come to that I bring to these steps six and seven. That that um, you know steps six and seven are right in the middle numerically of the steps, and they um, my view is that they are the steps that are about change, about real change, beyond the the step one change of, of letting go of our behavior. But step six and seven come after having done an inventory and shared that with someone. And now the things that have been revealed in that inventory, the negative qualities, the character defects, or whatever you want to call them, because I, I don't think... Again, the language can get in the way of of just working on what you need to work on. Uh, now we come to step six and seven. It becomes a question of of how is this? Uh, how are we going to change around these things that we've uncovered? Because obviously, just writing an in inventory that's not quite enough. Um, and uh, you know, when I I did the twelve steps in a very formal way, I did this. process steps four through nine with my sponsor in 1986 and um you know just as it says in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous I after sharing my inventory with him one afternoon uh I went home and read through the steps again and looked at what it says and and, to do and it says basically to ask God to remove your shortcomings you know and (laughs) and um you know, I think I think there's something beautiful about the ritual aspect of that that the book suggests you do. That it, it's really asking you to to reflect on what have you learned and and what you know how do you how do you want to proceed? Have you have you really laid the groundwork? Have you done a good job here? And there's there's um, something uh, lovely and kind of elegant about the process they're describing, but but certainly for someone who doesn't believe in an intercessionary God who's going to, you know, c- reach into you and perform uh, character defect surgery, <laughs> um, it doesn't give you much to hold on to in terms of how does this change happen. Uh, and so it's something that I've really explored and investigated for quite some time uh, uh, it, as I've been working with Buddhism in the Twelve Steps. And so the question that I've kind of asked, as I often do, is, well, what does Buddhism say about this? Buddhism have a similar process, and what do they say about it? And so there's probably a lot we could say, because certainly Buddhism is about transformation. Buddhism is about change. Buddhism is about... uh, Letting go of our uh, negative qualities and cultivating our positive qualities. So, uh, so it certainly must say a lot about it. And and we could we can talk about uh, a range of things. But the thing that I'm going to kind of focus on tonight is the aspect of the eightfold path called right effort, because right effort seems to me to make them be the most directly related thing to how do I change well, it must somehow involve some effort uh, or or be related to effort in some way. That is, is there some non-effort that I need to do as well? Uh, and I don't mean to be cryptic, but uh, I think we can, I can can hopefully explain what that means. Um, so I actually made some notes today, which those who come to my talks regularly know is a rare... A rare occurrence. So let me just talk about the traditional Buddhist teachings on effort and then kind of go from there. So traditionally there are two kind of really well-known teachings on effort. One is called the Four Great Efforts, and the, the four great efforts are to avoid negative stuff coming up, or, have, you know, getting engaged in negative mind states, negative behaviors. Abandon ones that are there, let go of the things that, the negative st- mind states that are there and behaviors. Cultivate positive mind states and behaviors and maintain you know, positive mind states that you've developed. So it's two that are about the negative. Uh, try, to, try to avoid them, but if they come up, let them go. Two that are about the positive. Try to, if they're not there, try to cultivate them. Once they're there, try to sustain them. So this is a, a typical Buddhist teaching in that it's very uh, sort of um, logical... And, uh, you know, it's mathematical. You know, it's a list. It's very balanced. Uh, um, but it, it leaves something to be desired in terms of, well, how do I do that? <laughs> how do I avoid, for instance? So um, in the recovery world, we work with these same things. So avoiding is what we do when we don't hang out with the people we used to hang out with, we don't go to the places we used to go, like bars, drug addicts, drug dealers' houses. Um, But even more, I think in a maybe more subtle way, um, one of the things that I, when I work with individuals which I don't do much anymore, but when I've worked with individuals, I've focused a lot on triggers. So triggers for relapse, triggers for you know, acting out. If we can know what our triggers are, we avoid the situations, you know, whether it's a person, place, or thing, whether it's types of... Uh, you know, There was one guy I worked with for a while who said he didn't drink at work and he didn't drink at home, but on his way home, the car would mysteriously turn to the bar. I said, okay, let's work on that, you know, and asked him to kind of look at the stuff that was coming up between work and home, but also just said, okay, avoiding just involves make the commitment before you get in the car to go home, to go home. You know, it's like, you know, do the action, right? So there's, I mean, we work on these things internally and externally in recovery. We work on the feelings that come up, but we also, it's a program of action, as we say. So we we do, we take practical steps. So that, that to me is a good example of, of avoiding. Abandoning, of course, is what we've done to be here. We've abandoned our addiction. Um, and... And again, I mean, you know, in a way, the steps make as much sense as anything. Because how the hell do you do that? You know, it's kind of mysterious. It's why people often say, "Well, I'm here by the grace of God," in a meeting. You know, because uh, that transformation, um, it it isn't always apparent what the causes are, and it's something that I actually, in my workbook, I have a exercise on. uh, What's it called? It's called. um, Anyway, it's it's about looking at the causes that allowed you to abandon, to um, you know lose the obsession, or to stop drinking and using, or whatever your addiction is. Because from a Buddhist viewpoint, things don't happen through the grace of God, you know. <laughs> Uh, they happen through car- causes and conditions, through karmic causes, through actions. And those actions can be internal, so thoughts are considered a form... Uh, they Thoughts cause karma. Uh, uh, in other words, when you have a thought, there's, a, there's an effect from that. So karma is just about cause and effect. So thoughts, words, spoken words, and deeds all have karmic effects. So... One of the things that I did for myself, and that this is how I kind of came up with this exercise I thought about well, I know it seemed like that day I just kind of woke up and was like i 'm done i 'm not drinking anymore, and i didn't want to drink anymore once i'd made that decision. If I scroll back years and years before I had started to try to control and enjoy you know i i'd try to i i didn't just completely. I didn't just drink and use to the maximum amount every day of my life. There was a lot of attempts to control. There was also a parallel life of trying to cultivate a spiritual life. I was trying to meditate before I got sober. I was trying to be a good person. I think even if you don't, there's no formal way in which you were trying to develop yourself personally. I think every one of us was trying to wanted to be a better person, at least wanted to, and that wanting itself is powerful. It's called right intention in Buddhism—the desire to live skillfully, the desire to be a good person, to be generous, to be kind, to not harm others. So, um, I I think it's for me it's important to own that. You know, I don't I don't want to say yeah. Uh, I got myself sober. But I also don't want to say that I didn't get myself sober. Because if somehow I got sober and clean magically through some powers that are unrelated to my actions, then how do I know that magically I'm not going to start drinking again? Because it it implies that I have no control over what happened. I'm just like this leaf blowing in the wind, you know, that God or something is a higher power, is controlling. Uh, I, I don't think that, that doesn't even make sense, you know, none of us, I don't think any of us experience our life in that way. The thing is that in the recovery world, we try to get away from the idea of control because addiction so much comes out of our effort to control, to control how we feel, you know and And beyond and control people and and all the things around us, but fundamentally to we want to feel the way we want to feel all the time, and that's i I think that's like the core reason for for being loaded so so there's a a strong kind of push to to orient towards letting go of control, which I think is is wise, but it has to be seen in this greater context i think so Uh, let me talk about um, I, I'm going to actually come back to that idea because I think it's really important to reconcile the idea of my my control or my actions and what results those have with the idea of letting go of control it's It's very important to hold those two skillfully, but I want to give you another. A second Buddhist teaching on effort, the other kind of classical teaching, which I think um, gives us a, a really helpful guideline and in some ways is more easy to relate to. And this is the one where the Buddha says that our effort needs to be balanced like tuning an instrument, tuning a stringed instrument, like a I think they say a lute in the texts, but we can say a guitar you know if you have a string on a guitar and it 's too and you tune it down too low it 's like <laughs> yeah that 's not helpful that 's just flapping there. you tune it up it 's too high and then <particles> you know it pops i don't know if your effort has ever popped, but uh so the idea is, oh, you need to tune it you know to the middle place, right, which is a very Buddhist idea of kind of having balance, finding a, finding a place of harmony, of balance, not too extreme to one one side or the other. Again, really relates to the, to the addict tendencies to, oh, now that I'm clean, I'm going to do everything right. I'm going to be the perfect person. I'm going to work the steps perfectly, and I'm going to be the great, you know, parent or employee or husband, <laughs> wife, you know. Now, you know, because now, before it was like, ah, screw it all, you know, <laughs> who gives a hell, you know. And it's like, oh, okay, you know, we, we we tend to do these things, right? We tend to go to extremes. It's another sort of quality of the addict personality if we can generalize on that somewhat. So this idea of this, this, this a string that's in tune, it's in harmony even, Uh, is, uh, I think, a really helpful one. And just in terms of our meditation practice, this is very helpful. So meditation practice itself kind of works as a microcosm for our spiritual life, for our recovery life, in the sense that, you know, you sit down and meditate and you learn some skills, you get some tools, and you have to get some tools some you know, if you just sit down, go, I mean, when I first tried to meditate, I just, like, sat down and, went, okay, I think I read something by Alan Watson. I don't know what it said, but I just was like, okay, I'll just try to meditate. Uh, no, I can't do this, you know, because <laughs> there were no tools. I had no guidance. There was no structure. So, um, so, you know, we need some structure that, okay, what I'm trying to do is, like, pay attention to my breath when my mind wanders, oh, I'll come back to my breath. Okay. Then you learn more detailed instructions. Oh, when your mind wanders, note what happens. Note what kind of thought it is. When you have a sensation, note that. When you hear a sound, note that. This is the practice that I learned. This is the sort of one of the traditional Vipassana practices, and and uh, it gets very detailed and meticulous and you know, When I was first doing this, the first couple of years of practice, I was doing a lot of retreats and I was trying to do it right. You know, I was trying to get it right. Did you ever try to meditate right? <laughs> uh, I'm sure we all do that at some point. Right? About you know, several weeks into a very long retreat, I just started to go crazy. I was like, this is just annoying. You know, I, I can't do it. You know, I'm, I'm, you know, I go, oh, oh, oh. and so, because every time the mind watches you come back, it's like you note, but in, in, the, the, along with the notes like, you're screwed up again, come on back, you know. And then, and then you're like, oh, noting, judging myself, okay, wow, and then after like, geez, I'm judging myself so much. Oh, now I'm judging my judging. Oh, <laughs> it's like infinite regression, you know. And I just, at a certain point, I just went you know screw it, and I let it all go, and in that moment, literally in that moment, and in that experience, I discovered oh there 's this other thing, which is just to let it all go, uh, and so it was like I had gone i'd tuned the string too tight, and now I realized, oh, I need to loosen it up a little bit, and you know and I found kind of a middle place over time you know, that, that was in the middle of a retreat where there was already a lot of quiet and stillness, so it was easy to kind of find that middle place. My mind naturally went there. When I try to practice like that in my daily practice without any sort of structure, again, my mind will just kind of wander off and I play 18 holes of golf and then come back and start the round again, you know. And uh, so, so again, it's this finding this this. Balance well in in that situation when the mind is just spinning out, it's a good idea to do some noting or just to bring it back a little bit and maybe some of these kind of mantras, breath, breath work. So that's the tuning practice. So the to make this kind of connection with. And I think uh, I have to kind of bring in step three, turning your will and your life over to the care of God and is, is very much connected to, and I humbly ask him to remove our shortcomings because it, it's uh, working with this same attitude of I'm not going to try to control everything. So what is it that we do and what is it that we can expect out of what we do? Now, this is we're taught this very clearly, I think, in the 12-step world if we're paying attention. And I think it's, uh, in Buddhism as well, maybe not as explicit. But what we're taught in the 12-step world is do the next right thing, do the right action, and then trust in the results. So this is where the effort, then, we can make plenty of effort if it's not caught up in the results, well, the the Buddhist corollary to this is the, how the Buddha says that our suffering is caused by grasping, and he he doesn't he he encourages people to be very um, rigorous in their meditation practice, but it's with this uh, added piece that you can't be doing it with an expectation that you're going to get somewhere or get something out of it you and it's the same idea that we do with the steps which is that we've got to really we've got to really work hard and then then we have to let go of the results very difficult right this is right effort right right effort is about effort not about what happens from the effort <laughs> and Of course, it's impossible to actually do this, uh, which is the way the true. uh, Which is true of most spiritual principles that we can't. We can't live up to them. How can you say I'm going to sit down and meditate and try to do a really good job, but I don't care what happens? Of course, you're not going to say that. But you can de-emphasize the results, right? And you can keep reminding yourself that you really aren't going to control the results. And if you keep doing it and you keep practicing, you discover that it really works right? (laughs) to just show up and create what we call in Buddhism the causes and conditions. That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to create the causes and conditions for the arising of insight, for the arising of loving-kindness, for the arising of wisdom, for the arising of calm and peace. And we understand that there's a process to getting there. What we don't control is when and how that process plays out. But what we control is where am am I going to put in the energy to make that happen? And That's the right effort that we have to work at. And it is work. It's a tremendous amount of work. Um, you know, I, I really had this experience recently around my golf game. And, I I've, you know, I've come out of the closet more and more about the fact that I play golf. and I, uh, it's a, I know it's a shameful activity, but in the, in the Buddhist world particularly and in progressive circles. You know, I was raised in a, a very privileged environment. My father was a lawyer. We belonged to a country club. And... Um, so I started playing golf when I was a kid, and, and it always fascinated me. I always loved it, and I, I don't know why. It's just one of those things, you know. But um, as, I, as I got into my teenage years, and this was the mid-'60s, well, and this was a country club that, you know, at the time I didn't particularly think about it, but they did not admit blacks or Jews to this country club. And this was in Pennsylvania. It wasn't in South Carolina, you know. Uh, but, and, it's, and we're talking about this mid-60s, so um, it just, uh, and I, I've sort of thought about that recently and wondered, because my parents were very, were liberals, you know, they were, my father was an Irish Catholic, you know, Democrat from Chicago, you know, he was never, the, his one regret in life was, was uh, voting for Richard Nixon in 1968, it was <laughs> the only thing he ever said he regretted doing, but. So, but, uh, so I wonder how they felt about that. Uh, my parents were not activists, that's for sure. And I certainly wasn't paying attention at that point. And, you know, I lived in that bubble of privilege. But as the 60s went on, I started to grow my hair. And um, one day I was, on the, I was told by the uh, um, powers that be at the country club that they were not going to allow me on the golf course anymore because my hair was too long, which sealed the deal for me in terms of my relationship to golf, because it was about the time I was starting to drink and use and become a, like a rock musician, and like playing golf really didn't fit with that whole thing anyway. <laughs> hippies hippies didn't play golf as far as I knew, although it turns out, you know, some of them probably did. Anyway, I gave it up until I turned 60, and I took James Barris' um, Awakening Joy course, and in that course... He asked you to make this list of things that you like to do, and I re- and it came up, and I was like, I do want to do that, and I got some golf clubs, and so that's been five years now, and, I, and one of the things that I discovered playing golf is that I'm a very determined person, and I never thought I was, I always thought I was kind of lazy, but I realized, oh yeah, I did teach myself to play guitar pretty damn well. And uh, I've done, I've, I've, you know, written some good books. And, you know, I've, I've worked really hard. I've, I've worked really hard to play golf well. But I also, um, you know, I played with a friend of mine the other day. And at the end of the round, he said, yeah, I'd forgotten how obsessed you are about this. You know? <laughs> so, and he's in recovery, too. But he has a different approach. He's more like the, uh, like, coke addict approach to golf. It's just like... Okay, let's go, dude. No, like I'm more like the you know stoner. Like, you know. Um, anyway, recently I I went to see George Mumford, who uh, taught mindfulness to Michael Jordan and Kobe Bryant, and, and worked with Phil Jackson. His book, this book, is back there, and uh, and his book is called The Mindful Athlete. And there's just one page that says "right effort," and I just saw that page, and I was like, I, "And I just realized that the way, that I need to play golf the way I meditate, which is the, what I described to you. That I kind of don't, I don't struggle to do it right. I understand that meditation is one failure after another, and that you know that there's a process, and sometimes it's unfolding positively. You know, sometimes if you create the conditions, it's okay. Sometimes it's not, and you just sit anyway. And I went out and like shot the best round of my life. You know, just a couple of weeks ago, I just was like, I'm just not gonna, I'm not gonna think about my swing anymore. I'm not gonna think about my score. I'm not gonna try. I'm just gonna like play. And it was like, it was weird. You know, like, okay, I gotta go play again and do that again. The next time I play it, it's like shot 15 strokes worse than that. So it's just <laughs> like, okay, that was. <laughs> <laughs> it's not magic, you know, how do you let go, right? Practicing letting go. Um. But, you know, and, and I've been thinking about, you know, maybe trying to do some writing around that stuff, but uh, this is the, you know, it's a mystery, right? And it's, it's the, uh, what I mean is right effort is a mystery, I don't mean to be so cryptic here, that you know, when we ask that question, well, what is right effort? We can only know in a given moment what our right effort is. You know, whether we need to, you know, tighten the string or loosen the string. We can only know in the present moment, and the only way we can know is by being mindful in the present moment. So mindfulness goes hand in hand with right effort. Without mindfulness, we can't have right effort. Um so I wanna so then dig a little deeper with a piece from uh, Ajahn Suchito, Theravadan Monk. I'm gonna uh, just read a bit of this uh, and maybe and then comment on it. And this is a chapter about energy, so it's very related to effort. We all probably recognize then any development, spiritual development he's really talking about, is going to depend on the consistent energy with which we apply ourselves. So applied energy is one of the qualities that the Buddha regularly encouraged when he structured his teachings. For awakening or enlightenment, energy is not just a matter of intense effort. It is the wisely applied resource that resists the push of psychological habits. Uh, he's digging deep here. So, he says, some of these habits build up into programs such as perfectionism, dependence on others, obsessive self-criticism, and addictions. And these programs cripple our actions and well-being and use up our resources. In theory, being aware of these should lift us out of their grasp. But in practice, it, doesn't often, it often doesn't because there is a block that stops awareness penetrating them. So this is where I think it gets very interesting. These programs of habit are like the HIV virus. They infiltrate our immune system by posing as real and necessary aspects of our identity. We even defend them. To the workaholic, their efforts are necessary to keep going. To the alcoholic, liquor becomes a way of finding a fit in the world. These programs offer the security of an identity through a set of habits that kick in by default. So when the wave of insecurity or loneliness or passion hits awareness, it doesn't face the risk and the discomfort of challenging the self-view and the worldview that these programs present for us. Instead, awareness jumps on board the reflex habit with denial, distraction, Blame, etc. Surfing on these seems a better option than standing in the tide. Quote, and anyway, I'm aware of it. This is, I I hope this makes sense because I I think it's a pretty deep teaching, but I'll read one more paragraph. The point is that awareness has to widen beyond waves and programs. Its default is to be conditioned by the current span of attention and what appears within that, and by intention the directive of the heart. When a program wells up, it floods attention, and our intentions tend to follow the push of the flood. You understanding that? So, you know, something comes up, and not only do we get, get this trigger, but we get the belief system comes along with it that reinforces it. So energy is needed to resist that flood, and direct awareness to firm ground rather than brute force energy is mostly about sustaining wise endeavor its chief function is to keep awareness awake at the places where we drift into automatic then its gift of steady vitality can replace the drive and crash programs of habit so i just i think this really takes us to another level with this idea of effort that you know yeah you need to be mindful of what's coming up, but you also have to somehow see see if you can get what it's, the bigger program, as he talks about, the sort of habit pattern that's being reflected in this. And this is why sustained practice over a long period of time is important. It's why things like inventory and continued to take personal inventory is important. Because we can't see these programs necessarily in a moment. We need to watch our minds. What, meditate every day and watch what comes up in your mind and you will start to see that there are patterns that appear in your mind, habit patterns, thought patterns, emotional patterns, that are very persistent. And then that's a time when you can step back and do some reflection about that. What, How these things are actually creating your reality, creating your belief systems, driving your behaviors. You know, when you see that you keep getting stuck in the same behaviors, the same conflicts in relationships, the same struggles in your work, to be able to see, oh, there's something bigger here. It's not just this moment that I'm feeling aversion, so I need to breathe and let go of aversion. It's that that aversion is related to something deeper that I've is taken in as a belief system. So, for instance, I tend to, to fall into depression when I start to feel depressed. It brings up this whole program that has a story behind it, that has a belief system behind it, that has identity behind it. That's who I am. Here I go again. I don't. There's nothing to. There's no way I can fix this. Um, you know, I need to get divorced and move to Mexico. You know. <laughs> Uh, it just you know, it's just this whole wave of stuff comes up, and and if I don't step out, if I don't go, wow, here I go again. I can destroy the day. I can destroy a lot. A, a lot of time can get spent before I snap out of it and go, whoa, I'm just in a bad mood right now, you know. And yeah, I have this <laughs> depressive tendency, and there's a lot of things I can do about it, you know. I need to stay engaged. One of the things I know is that I have to stay engaged in my life in a lot of ways—physically, mentally, emotionally, creatively, you know, socially. I have to do that stuff every day. You know, I can't just go like, oh, "It's all right. I'll just sit and watch golf today." <laughs> I have to go out and play golf now. Uh-huh. <laughs> so this is this then is the bigger issue of effort and change that, uh, that it's, and it's why not why exactly but it's, one, it, it, it's related to this idea of why we talk about how long we've been sober how long we've been in a program and how long we've been meditating or even how long a retreat we're going to go on because time is really important in this. It's only over time that we can see the patterns and we can start to deconstruct them and one of the problems with uh, uh, substance abuse is uh, and is that each time you get loaded, you lose touch with your own mind, with your own with with you, know, you lose awareness, and so uh, there's no uh, experience like wisdom, no wisdom can come out of it. You can't, like wisdom comes, who did people used to say were wise? Old people, right? Because they'd been around for a long time and they'd seen a lot. But if you keep breaking your consciousness with substances, it actually interrupts the development of wisdom. And, and it's, it's, this is like it's my theory, okay, so I'll, I'll admit that. But uh, I think it really makes sense that over you don't grow you don't develop wisdom. You don't grow emotionally when you keep getting intoxicated. It just it just undermines the whole process of learning, which takes time. Uh, you, know, you know, be sober for a long time. Be meditating for a long time. These things take time, and and we can only learn by having this big sort of data set. Uh, and every time we undermine that or, or delete something from it, you know, we we lose track. We we lose um, that whole development. So it's you know this is uh, why we can see that that you know in the recovery world we just say suit up and show up you know I, I love that idea just just show up you know it, you don't have to know what the result's going to be you don't have to decide what the result's going to be I never set out to be a Buddhist recovery teacher. <laughs> You know, that didn't exist (laughs) when I went to graduate school to study creative writing. You know, I was going to be a novelist. I was going to be a rock star. You know, I was going to be, you know. And, you know, we don't decide those things, but that's what's beautiful about life. You know, if you got to think, it's funny how we are, you know, we want to be able to control everything. But what if, like when you were 20? You, there was like a, you know, somebody came to you, okay, now you can decide the rest of your life. Just fill in these things you want. What do you want, you know, for a relationship? How many children do you want to have? Where do you want to live? What do you want to do for work? You know, how old do you want to live to be? You know, would that be boring or what? Oh, you know, I'm in my 20th year of like doing the thing that I really want. It's, uh, you know, I mean, d- how many people do you, you know, I can talk about people who were successful in the things that I wanted to do, rock stars, you know, how many happy 65-year-old rock stars are there, you know, well, you know, really, I mean, it's just not a way to happiness, right? It's just this are so I mean, just for an example, you know. But but think of the thing you you could do it for yourself. What have you wanted to do in your life that you're just really grateful that didn't happen, right? <laughs> so that that idea, uh, you know, it, and it's so hard. Again, it's so hard to like. How do you completely devote yourself to doing something without, you know, control? Well. <laughs> without wanting to know what the results are going to be. As I said before, you don't, but the thing is, you're not going to control the results anyway. I mean, this idea of, you know, show up, do your best, and then let go and let God, or whatever, you you know, trust in the results. You can either trust in the results or not trust in the results, but you're still not going to control them. So this is really not a question of what's going to happen Like, oh, I'm going to do what I want, I'm going to make it happen. It's not that, it's that your relationship to what happens, it's it's actually not even your relationship to what happens, it's your relationship to what you're doing when you're trying to make that happen. How does that feel? Are you doing this action? Are you striving for this thing and creating suffering for yourself because you think that when you get there, you won't be suffering? Yeah. If I just suffer enough now, when I get there it's a very kind of Protestant thing, I don't know. You know then I'll be in heaven, right? Uh, then I'll get the payoff. Then I'll be enlightened. You know, if I just meditate enough, you know, go on enough. I hate these retreats, but if I keep doing it, I'm gonna get enlightened and then it'll be great. You know that's the thing. That's the problem. That's what this is really about, right when we talk about right effort. We're talking about are you doing effort that creates suffering? Or are you actually enjoying the effort? Because this is your life, not that. <laughs> this is it. And what you get now is what you get. And if we have control over anything, that's actually, we have a, a fair degree of control over that. Again, if we can be aware of it, and if we can see the patterns and the programs, you know, if we can kind of see, oh, how am I doing this? You know? I mean, it's just, as I said, it's like I kind of r- realized, you know, the reason I'm getting, you know, I get frustrated on the golf course and, you know, and start hitting bad shots is up here. I'm, cr- I'm creating that. And I, I realized, wow, every round that I play, most of my shots are really good. And I've actually, I've worked really hard. I've, you know, practiced and, you know, studied and read and, and gone out and played and... and the only problem is that some of my shots are really bad. And so I just, one of the things I did, I mean, this is not me in my typical personality, but I, in this, at least in some of the rounds lately, I've just like shifted to, let's really focus on those good shots, you know, because that's mostly what's happening. When there's a bad shot, it's like, oh. Uh, yeah, that's bound to happen too. It's one of the reasons I like to watch professional golfers because they also hit bad shots, which is really delightful when that
1: happens.
0: <laughs> when Tiger Woods misses a four-foot putt, it's like, <laughs> I can do that. <laughs> well, I don't usually give such a long talk Uh but I guess that's what happens when I make notes, and <laughs> Man, it's great. It was right effort there. It's good. So, but there's a couple minutes left, if there's a comment or question about this. Be happy to, yeah.
1: I just want to say, you know, I'm kind of early in recovery. I kind of keep going in and out, in and out. But um, one thing that um, is kind of keeping me sober is that. Um, Instead of thinking, oh, this is what I want to have happen in my life, I feel if I if I remain sober and don't have that, like you said, you know, when you when you get high, that stops the yeah. wisdom the growth, Is that I'm giving the opportunity for something to happen. Yeah. I'm putting. I'm just opening up for the opportunity, not trying to get it. Yeah. Don't even know what's going to happen. Yeah. But if I drink, it's never going to happen.
0: That's right. Mm-hmm. Never yeah. Happens. Yeah. That's great. That's beautiful, and and, and that's the faith element. And you know, we talk about Buddhism as not being faith based, but it is very much faith based because it's that's that same thing. You sit down to meditate. What, you know, what you don't know what's going to happen, but you're creating the opportunity, the possibility. Whereas, we know that there's no possibility if we're loaded. You know that that nothing's going to happen. Um, And it's, yeah, it's it's funny because, you know, Buddhism is supposed to be, and recovery is, you know, very much about like the present moment. And yet, you could say, well, when I get high, it's so that I can really enjoy myself in the present moment. But, you know, that's an oversimplification to just say, be here now. That's not enough. You have to realize that not only is there this present moment reality, but that what is happening and what you are bringing to this moment is conditioning future moments. And that every moment, every thought, word, and deed in each moment conditions future moments. And that, that you're creating, you're just at, at the same time that you're experiencing your life and you're experiencing the fruits of your past actions, you're also creating the fruits for your future experience. And and so that's when thinking about the future in that regard becomes really important, Re, really respecting the future, that this is, that this, uh, we can't just, oh, just live, you know, YOLO. Uh, you, know, you only <laughs> live once. That's well, my daughter. I learned that from her. But, <laughs> which is weird because, you know, there's a county, YOLO County. But anyway, <laughs> you know, that just live for this moment is like yeah but unless you're planning on dying in this moment it's going to have some effect on the future moment so if you really screw around right now it's going to like the next moment might not be so good as we know so it's there's again that's one of those balances is that it's that it's so easy to go to extremes and, and take Dharmic principles, even Buddhist principles, to extremes. Oh, well, we're just supposed to be present. You know, and that was, that was kind of used in the kind of hippie Zen world, you know, like, oh, we'll just, like, you know, drop some acid and really be present, you know, and just see God. And it's like, and then you wake up and you go, like, oh, what did I do? And it's like, yeah, Okay. Well, we are actually just about out of time, so let's let's close with the reflection. The Buddhist practice is to share whatever we learn, whatever we gain through our meditation to radiate that out to all beings. And in the same way, the 12 steps resolve in step 12 to carrying the message. Of recovery, now, both of these reflect the fact that we don't live in isolation. we are connected to others, and what we do affects the world around us, who may are practice together tonight and our work at our own recovery and our spiritual growth be of benefit to all beings. May all beings be free from the suffering of addictive behaviors. May all beings find joy and peace in their lives.